Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a Christadelphian podcast. Today we're going to be asking the question, one Bible, many religions, does it matter? And of course this question is raised throughout the centuries. Which religion is the true religion? And I think it's interesting to look at the example of the Apostle Paul, who was focused on killing Christians, if you remember. Now, if he hadn't been converted on the road to Damascus by a heavenly vision, he would have died without hope. Jesus taught that if we didn't believe that he was the Messiah, we too will die in our sins. So it is a very important subject and there of course is many arguments as to which is the true religion is it Muslim is it Christian etc etc so this talk is about 50 minutes long looks in detail at some of these questions and attempts to answer them and it's well worth a listen again if you've got any questions or comments or if you'd like to leave us a message please do so and we'll pick it up we can. Thank you very much and enjoy the podcast. Oh, and if you enjoy what you're listening to, then please share. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, we'd like to begin with the story of a man who experienced firsthand a colossal change in his beliefs. It was about the year AD 37, The location was the deserted region of Abilene in the province of Syria. There, a gritty man trudging along, leading a deadly band of men across the vast expanse towards Damascus, was in pursuit of the very thing that would later pervade all of his efforts in later life. With him, he had the documents of a ruling elite that gave him the authority to do whatever he wanted, whatever he required, uh, regardless of the force needed. This man was determined. He had presence of mind. He had dignity to uphold and the law of Moses to follow. This man knew his Bible. In fact, he knew it exceptionally well, but he had come to the wrong conclusion. He had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Saviour. And what he was in pursuit of was nothing other than the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But did it matter if he was wrong? Surely because he was a Bible believer, maybe then God would give him some recognition. Well... The Lord Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8 and verse 24, that, uh, for if ye believe not that I am he, that is, the Messiah, you will die in your sins. And so if this man went to his death without believing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Saviour that God had raised up, then he would die without hope. He would die in his sins. Well, that man who was pursuing the believers was, uh, was Saul of Tarsus, whose name was later changed to Paul. 
Paul was converted to believing that Christ, uh, to believing Christ to be the Son of God, and he went on to write a significant portion of the the New Testament in his later life. And the Apostle Paul would later write concerning his past. Uh, sorry, it's not on the slide. I'll just read it out to you. He'd later write concerning his past. You've heard of my way of life in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the believers. So this man, Saul of Tarsus, a zealous Pharisee who persecuted the believers, took a total turnaround and then became the Apostle Paul, who would go on to become one of the greatest preachers of Jesus Christ. And we want to take some words from this man to see if he thought it mattered what you believe. He said this in his second epistle to the believers at Corinth. He said, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Here Paul is telling you and I that we need to examine ourselves, we need to look at ourselves really honestly and just check for ourselves are we in the faith not a faith but the faith there is only one faith and so that's what we'll do tonight we'll take a look and see if our beliefs are in line with the teachings of the bible so now let's establish a groundwork for our presentation tonight Tonight we will be assuming that the Bible is authentic and that in line with the teachings of the Apostle Paul in his second epistle to Timothy where he wrote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it's all inspired and it is necessary for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we're shown from this passage that the word of God contains all that we need uh, all the instruction we need to understand every doctrine. Now, if you would like any evidence of the Bible being the word of God, uh, please feel free to speak to either myself or any other Christadelphian, and we would be very happy to discuss with you how the Bible came to us and some proofs of the Bible's authenticity. So now we've looked at the Apostle Paul, a man who believed in the Old Testament Bible but he had come to the wrong conclusions. And so tonight we would like to look at three doctrines, uh, which we might call key principles, which really create a framework uh, for what we may view uh, as the teachings of the Bible. And after looking at each of these, we will return to our story of the man Paul and see what the converted apostle Paul uh, says about each of these matters. So the key doctrines that we will be looking at is, first of all, we'll look at the relationship between God and Jesus Christ. Then we'll look at what the Bible says about sin. And then what happens when we die. So there are, in this first topic, what, ha uh, what is the relationship between God and Christ? There are really two schools of thought. We'll take an example of two Christian beliefs. On the one hand, we have the Seventh-day Adventists, and they believe that the divine Godhead is made up of three holy beings, consisting of God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, we have the Jehovah's Witnesses, which have come to a very different conclusion, confessing that God is one, God the Father, and that his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is an altogether separate being, and that the Holy Spirit is the power of God, which God uses to fulfil his purpose. Now, does it matter if they have these differing beliefs, if at least they both believe the Bible? Well, John 17 and verse 3, here the Lord Jesus Christ is praying to God shortly before his crucifixion, and here he says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So what can you and I understand from this passage? Well, it's saying this. If you and I want eternal life, which is God's offer of salvation, if you and I want that, then it is absolutely essential that we understand who God is and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I'm sure that by the end of tonight, you will be able to stand with me and and look and see just how pertinent these doctrines are to understand if we want salvation. So what does the Bible teach concerning God? Well, it very clearly teaches that God is one. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, God says there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, very clearly, the teaching of the Bible is that God is one. But as we've seen, many Christians have come to a very different conclusion, believing that God is made up of three divine beings, and that is a belief known as the doctrine of the Trinity. So, they believe in God the Father, the creator and sustainer of all things, then God the Son, the incarnation of God as a human being, and then God the Holy Spirit, the power of God, which is active in the world around, uh, drawing people to God. And they believe that these three, three uh, gods make up one God uh, and make up a unity. Now, these are very widely accepted ideas, but do they have a biblical foundation? Well, there are some passages that may quite easily be misunderstood and so may lead us to such a conclusion. And on the screen we have a few such passages. The first two passages there are the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he says in the Gospel of John in chapter 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. And he that hath seen me hath seen the Father in John 14 and verse 9. And so these both appear to be saying that God and Jesus Christ are one and the same. And then some go on to look at the last verse that we have there on the slide, Luke 1 and verse 35, and say that the, uh, join the Holy Spirit to this Godhead, saying that the Holy Spirit fathered uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the conception of Jesus Christ in Luke 1 and verse 35. 
And the angel answered and said unto her, that is to Mary, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And so some people take this verse to mean that the Holy Spirit fathered Jesus, meaning that God, his Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one and the same. Now, Godhead, it's a term we've used a couple of times tonight. It's a word that is found three times in the King James Version of the Bible. But if we look at each of those occurrences and look at the Greek words behind them, so the New Testament was translated from the Greek, and if we look at the words from which these were translated, we find that they are three separate words, three different words. The first two are very similar. One is an adjective, the other is a noun, both meaning uh, divine nature. Uh, and the last one is a separate word, which basically just meaning divine. Or divinity. But now if we just pick up this first occurrence of the word Godhead that is translated from the word theos and see where else this word theos is used, we will find it in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. And there it's speaking of us. So it says there in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, the theos, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so if we were to translate this word theos here as Godhead, as it's elsewhere translated, as in Acts 17 and verse 29, we would read in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, this is what we would read. We would read that by these, that is the promises, ye might be partakers of the Godhead. Us partakers, part of the Godhead. That is an awful mix-up, friends. Now, I think the translators have done an excellent job uh, translating the Bible, but here with their bias, uh, Trinitarian bias, they've really done us a great disservice. They really should have translated uh, these words consistently so as not to lead people to some erroneous doctrines. Now, further to that, we can look at a few more inconsistencies with this idea that Jesus is part of the Godhead. We know from Psalm 121 and verse 4 and Isaiah 40 and verse 28 that God does not sleep or get weary. Yet Jesus slept in the back of the boat in the midst of a storm in Mark 8 and verse 38, sorry, Mark 4 and verse 38. And Jesus was weary when he reached Jacob's well in John 4 and verse 6. So here we can see some more contradictions if we're to say that Jesus was part of God. We find in James 1 and verse 13 that God cannot be tempted with evil. Yet in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 we find that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And so we have another direct contradiction if we were to say that Jesus is part of God. Now look at the words spoken to the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. 
Here God says to Malachi in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. So here we have a further contradiction. Trinitarians believe that, that when that Christ took on this, that God the Son took on this mortal nature, and then after, when, when he ascended to heaven, he retook that uh, God-like nature, this divinity. So if God doesn't change, we've got a further contradiction. Our last quote on the screen there, Mark 13 and verse 32. There, Jesus is speaking of the day when, following his ascension, he will return to the earth. And he says there, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not the angels which are in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. And so we have to say now that if there is a trinity consisting of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, being one God in three persons, then we would have to say that they have separate minds. And so it then begs the question, in what capacity are they one? Well, let's go to return to our misunderstood passages. Now, we're going to explain these passages. Um, so here is where you really need to keep up and follow, and we'll try and keep things as simple as possible. What we're about to see is that the Bible is stressing the point that God and Jesus Christ have the same purpose. They are one in purpose. They have the same objectives. And we would expect to see that. A son would usually carry on certain attributes of his father. And so here, Jesus Christ, the perfect son, imitates God, the perfect father. And so, of course, if they are both perfect, they will, of course, share the same objectives. They would share the same purpose. And it's in this way that they are one. Now, what is the purpose of God? Well, God tells us in the prophecy of uh, Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14, God says, For the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, that's a key passage to remember. Habakkuk 2 and verse 14. It's, it's not the only time that God says that. He also has a very similar message in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 21, in the, uh, right back uh, near the start of the Old Testament. So God wants to fill this earth with his glory. What does that mean? Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a Bible, turn to... John chapter 17, the Gospel of John. It's the last of the four Gospels at the start of the New Testament. This is the prayer of Jesus Christ shortly before he was crucified. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just listen carefully to these beautiful words of Jesus Christ here. In John chapter 17 and verse 6, he says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. So Jesus says here that he's preached to these men of the world. He's told them about God, and they have kept God's word. 
Now let's jump to verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And the world here is speaking particularly of the evil inhabitants of the world. Now continuing to verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them, that is the believers, out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify, which means to separate, separate them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so the word of God, which is the truth, separates us from the world. And how does it do that? Well, it separates us because we are to keep the word of God, as it said in verse verse 6 of John chapter 17. So God's word separates us by keeping us from the evil. Now, is everyone keeping up okay? We're, we're almost there. We're just about to bring it together and... We're answering the question, uh, why does Jesus say, I and my Father are one? So let's now jump to verse 20 of John 17. Jesus has now prayed for his disciples that lived at the same time as him. And now he's going on to pray for the disciples which would believe on him in the future, which includes our generation. So verse 20 says, Neither pray I for these alone, that is the disciples that lived in his time, but also for them which shall believe on me through their word. Now note this, that they may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. So God gave Jesus Christ glory, and Jesus Christ gave it to the believers. And so that is how he's going to fill this world with his glory. It's through people who believe on him. Uh, That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me. That they may be made perfect in one. Sinless. Perfect. In one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And it's very different language to how we talk today, but quite simply, this is what it's saying. We can be one with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ if we separate ourselves from the evils of this world and do what the word of God tells us to do. We aren't physically one with God, but in a spiritual sense. We are one because we have the same purpose, to do what God wants us to do, to fill the earth with his glory. It would be like you and I agreeing on a worldview of some kind. And so then we could say that we are of one mind. Now, it doesn't mean that we physically have one brain. You could understand that would have some difficulties. But hopefully you get the point. Well, now, before we leave this slide, we have one last verse to deal with. Luke 1 and verse 35. Now, this idea that the Holy Spirit fathered Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, or 
Holy Ghost, Father Jesus, has a problem in itself. Because if, if God the Father, uh, who is God the Father, if God the Holy Spirit fathered God the Son? I'll say that again. Who is God the Father, if God the Holy Spirit is the Father of God the Son? Because if God the Father did not father Jesus, then he is just God. And that is the logical answer. God is God. And God says, I am God and there is none else. There are none beside me. So the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost is the term that God uses to speak of his power. So God used his power to uh, cause the Virgin Mary to conceive and so Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now let's return to the man in our story and see what that we dealt with at the beginning of the evening and see what the Apostle Paul uh, taught concerning this matter. We went to this verse earlier. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Note, he's a man. He is not God. And Paul was converted following Jesus Christ's ascension to heaven. So, Jesus Christ, uh, sorry, Paul still describes him as a man. Now, Trinitarians believe that when he went to heaven, he took on uh, that uh, deity, form of deity. So, Paul's saying here he is still a man. Quite, quite obviously, we've got a problem there. So we've seen that we can share the separation of evil uh, from evil that Jesus Christ, uh, with Jesus Christ and God. We can be one with them. So that then begs the question, what is evil? What is sin? Well, we, not, we must uh, bear in mind also our topic for tonight, does it matter what you believe? So is this an essential topic? Is it essential for salvation? Does it really matter? Well, the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the believers in Rome that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Sin earns death. So quite obviously, this is a matter of life and death. It absolutely matters. This is, this is essential for your salvation. Now, I recognise we're not going to do any of our topics justice tonight, but what we want to do is just get a taste uh, to see how vital these topics are uh, for us all to understand. So what then does the Bible teach on this subject? In 1 John 3 and verse 4, it says that the tr uh, sin is the transgression of the law. Now, to transgress the law is to violate the law out of contempt of that law or ignorance of it. So whether we know what the law is or whether we don't, it is still sin. Which means the law, which as we've seen is the word of God, which we need to keep and we need to do, as we saw in John 17. If we do know the law, then we can keep it. And if we don't know the law, it is still sin if we 
uh, do not do it. So it is essential that we read God's word. In the epistle of James, in chapter 1 and verse 13, James says there, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when, sin, sorry, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So here is a key passage that uh, describes the process of sin. It starts with a thought of lust, a lust that is against the laws of God. And if we allow that thought to continue, we, we sin, brings us to sinning, and then we go against the commandments of God. And so because we sin, we deserve death. As we saw uh, in Romans, in our last verse, <clears throat> that sin brings death, it earns death. The prophet Jeremiah uh, said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So we're told that sin comes from within us. So that's the Bible's teaching on what sin is. But some Bible students have come to some very different conclusions. They teach that there is a supernatural being that is directly opposed to God, also called the adversary or the devil. He's called uh, or Satan. This, this being is the enemy of all righteousness and of those who uh, seek to follow God. He's the spirit son of God who was once an angel in authority in the presence of God. And they use Isaiah 14 and verse 12, which we'll go to shortly, to say that in the pre-mortal council in heaven, Lucifer, as Satan was then called, rebelled against God and since that time, he's sought to destroy the children of God on earth and to make their lives miserable by causing them to sin so that they die. So here's this passage in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. How, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cast down to the ground which did weaken the nations? And here we have something or someone... Lucifer, cut down to the ground and weakening the nations. So who is this Lucifer? Well, to find, find that answer, we need to look at the context of this verse. In the previous chapter, chapter 13, of, uh, this is a prophecy against Babylon. And that prophecy continues into chapter 14. And at verse 4 of chapter 14 of Isaiah... The prophecy turns against the king of Babylon in particular. And I'll just read you verse 4. Thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? And so that's speaking of the fall of Babylon. It's a proverb against the king of Babylon. Now, how did the king of Babylon fall from heaven? Well, in Bible symbology, heaven is used to represent ruling powers uh, in the earth today. And just by the way, also, uh, earth is sometimes used to represent the common people on earth today. And you have to uh, check the context to understand that. Now, 
We could also look at Ephesians 3 and verse 10 to understand this idea, or Isaiah 1 and verse 2 and 10, or Isaiah 65 and verse 17 and 18, or, or many other passages. And if you'd like those quotes again, feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. Otherwise, you can talk to any other Christadelphian, and we would be very happy to speak with you uh, about these things, as we also uh, constantly seek to better understand the truth as it is contained in the Word of God. Okay, so we've established that Lucifer is a ruler. He's the king of Babylon, without a doubt. Now, the second part of this verse says, How art thou cast down to the ground, cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? What's this saying? Well, it's saying this. The king of Babylon is cut down from his lofty status as being king. He's cut down to the ground. And he, he that weakened the nations, what does that mean? Well, in establishing the Babylonian Empire, the king of Babylon, of course, had to weaken the nations. He overthrew many nations to establish his empire. And so he is, uh, this, this emperor, really, is brought down to the ground. He loses his throne, and that is uh, how he's brought down from heaven and uh, brought down to the ground. So... Lucifer is not a supernatural being at all. He is the king of Babylon, removed from his throne. So let's now look at this other passage that we have here in Mark 1 and verse 13. And he, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan. There we have it. We're told in no uncertain terms that this is Satan, and he's, he's tempting the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely this is that superhuman being that is against God. Well, again, it is not. The word Satan in the Greek simply means adversary. Peter, who later became the Apostle Peter, was called a Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 16 and verse 23, Get behind me, Satan, or adversary, Thou art an offence unto me, for thou takest pleasure in the things, not in the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, you're an adversary because his focus is wrong. He was focused, he took pleasure and delighted in the things that be of men rather than the things uh, that, that uh, were of God. So that means, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I, can all be Satans, we can all be adversaries if we do the wrong thing, if we delight or have focus on the wrong things, on the things of evil. So what does the Apostle Paul, the converted Apostle Paul, have to say on this matter? Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 19 to 21, that these are the works of the flesh, these are deeds of evil. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, her heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Who can say they've never envied someone else or become angry for a selfish cause? See, we've all sinned. But those who continue to do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need to seek forgiveness for those things that we have done wrong, and we need to do that in the way that God commands, which we find in the Bible. But if we continue in this way, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's absolutely essential that we come to fully understand this, uh, what, God believes, uh, what God teaches about sin in his word, the Bible. So we need to take full responsibility for our own sins. We do them, we commit them, we have the choice whether we do them or don't. And so if we do them, we reap the rewards of that, which is death. Sin earns death. As our second quote says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> now we'll come back to that idea of uh, the gift of God, of eternal life, uh, a little later on. So, that brings us to our next topic. What is death? What happens when we die? What does the Bible teach about death? Now, quite obviously, this is a matter of life and death. Uh, so, again, we just need to check that it doesn't matter what we believe concerning death. Is it essential for salvation? Well, the Apostle Paul said that if in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most miserable. Without understanding what happens after we die, we are miserable. So yes, this subject absolutely matters. Well, what does the Bible teach? The wise King Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3 and verse 19, that that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. As one dieth, so dieth the other. They all have one breath. All go to one place. All are of the dust. And all turn to dust again. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 5 and 6 and 10, he says, The living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward. Also their love and their hatred their envy is now perished. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. So it's quite clear that when we die, nothing lives on. We all go to one place. We all go to the grave. Our lives expire, and so do our thoughts, our memories, and our emotions. Other Bible students, however, have come to some very different conclusions. Some believe that when we die, if we have been faithful, uh, we go to heaven, and if wicked, we go to hell. In hell, there is everlasting torment, and in heaven, everlasting harp playing and singing and other joyous activities. But where do these ideas come from? Well, there are many passages that are often misunderstood. I've put up two there for you. The first one, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 25 and verse 46, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, 
but the righteous into life eternal. So here are two passages that indicate this idea of that when, when we die, we go to heaven or to hell. But there are some major problems with these views. In Acts chapter 2, here Peter is speaking of David, a faithful king who lived in the Old Testament times. And he says there, Peter says, he, that is David, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Now, if Jesus' body was not left in hell, then it must have been in hell, because it wasn't left in hell. Yet, Jesus Christ was perfect. And so we've got a problem, don't we? It also goes on. For David is not ascended into the heavens. Now, David was known as a man after God's own heart. He was a very, very faithful man. Yet he didn't go to heaven. So who does go to heaven? Now, we just need to explain, uh, before we leave this passage, what Peter is saying here about Jesus Christ. Uh, so, again, we need to go back to the Greek language. What is this word used for hell? Well, if we go to the Greek language, we'll find that it's the word Hades, which simply means the grave. And so what Peter is saying is that Jesus Christ could not be left in the grave. Now, we've seen uh, that the Bible teaches that when we die, we return to the dust and nothing lives on. We can see some problems with this idea that, that we go to heaven or hell when we die. So let's now deal with these verses that uh, could lead us to this belief uh, that when we die, we go either to heaven or hell. And following that, we will conclude by looking at what the true hope of the Bible really is. So our first quote there, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5 and verse 12. <clears throat> so there's two options here. One is that the reward is in heaven, and the other is that the reward comes from heaven to earth. And we'll see shortly that uh, very clear, the very clear teaching of the Bible is that second option. The reward comes from heaven to earth. <clears throat> And there's a couple of quotes we could go to. Now, also, the teachings of Christ in, uh, around that verse there, uh, great is your reward in heaven. He says in Matthew 5 and verse 5, uh, the meat shall inherit the earth. He then says in the following chapter, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, which we would know very well, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. What's God's will? To fill the earth with his glory. Our second verse there that we have to deal with, Matthew 25 and verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now this simply means that the punishment is final. It is, ever, it is everlasting, but it is not an eternal uh, conscious torment, as some believe. Well, what does the Bible say awaits those who have died? Well, the Bible clearly says that when we die, uh, the, sorry, that the kingdom of God will be on earth and it awaits those who, uh, those who have died will be resurrected if they have, uh, 
had the correct faith in Jesus Christ. So now remembering our topic, doesn't matter what we believe, doesn't matter then what we believe concerning the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Jesus Christ tells us here that along with the righteous character of God, the kingdom of God, these two things are the first things that we, could, we should seek. So absolutely, this is a question, uh, without question, a matter of salvation. So what will the kingdom of God be like? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are many places we could go, but first we'll turn to a psalm, Psalm 37. It's a psalm written by David, who we spoke of earlier, the faithful king in the New Testament. I'm sorry, Old Testament. And in, in this psalm, there are many prophecies of what will happen to both the good and the evil. Uh, but we've just taken a few verses from this psalm to illustrate the point. Verse 9 of that psalm, Psalm 37. Evildoers will be cut off. Not eternally tormented, but cut off. They die. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, verse 11, and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And so uh, we, we see that uh, this will be, the kingdom of God will be a time of great peace. And also uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, we said earlier, that is quoted in Matthew 5 and verse 5 by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 22, for such as be blessed of God shall inherit the earth. And they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land, verse 29, and dwell therein forever. How long will the righteous live there? Forever. You see, this is the hope of the Bible. Living on earth forever. But of course, as we've seen earlier, without all the evil. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen, says in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what's God's will? We saw earlier, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14, that the earth will be filled with God's glory. Now in heaven where God is enthroned and where Jesus Christ and the angels are, all is perfect. They are all perfect beings. There is no evil. And so... Jesus is saying here, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants it to be the same on earth as it is in heaven. So earth will have no more evil. This is the hope of the Bible. So Jesus is really just saying it in two different ways. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom. Now, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about the kingdom of God. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 to 4, he says, In the last days, the Lord's house shall be established, and all nations shall go up to it. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and they shall beat their, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So what does this teach us about the kingdom of God? Firstly, a temple will be built for God. We read, the Lord's house shall be established. We see that people of all countries will go uh, to Jerusalem to worship God. We see there will be righteous education. Everyone will learn of God's ways. There will be righteous laws. There will be just judgment. He shall judge among the nations. And of course, there will be peace. They shall beat their swords uh, into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, and they won't learn war anymore. So this is a wonderful time that we have to look forward to. But when will it be? Well, Isaiah said at the start of that passage, in the last days. And Bible prophecy tells us that we are living in the last days. The Lord Jesus Christ told the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11 to 12, that he would come all of a sudden in the last days. And we will be judged as we are. We won't be given any second chances. If we're evil, we will be judged as evil and we will die. And if we are just, if we are good, we will be given eternal life on this earth and we will be forgiven for our faults. So... Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11 to 12. He that is, in, is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy or separate, it's the same word uh, sanctified that we saw in John 17, let him be separate still. And behold, I come suddenly. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So we don't know exactly when it will be. But what we do know is that one day soon, very soon, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth and he will judge uh, us based on how we have lived and he will raise the dead and they will be judged also. So to know how we should live... We need to understand the Bible correctly. And tonight we've looked at a few doctrines that are very commonly misunderstood. In fact, by far the majority of Christianity uh, believe at least one of these uh, wrong doctrines. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us some advice in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, where he says, Enter in at the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is that most people will go down the wrong path. What, what he's saying is we need to read our Bibles very carefully. Don't just go with the majority. Look at the Bible for yourself and understand what it, what it means. Look at it prayerfully. 
and seek for God's help in understanding it and carefully discover its message of salvation. In closing then, let's return to our men in the story. Uh, What did the converted apostle Paul teach? Well, he said in Romans 14 and verse 10 that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus Christ will return and he will judge the world. And then Paul also speaking in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 and 31 of he's speaking there of false religions. He says, the times of this ignorance in his day, God winked at, he overlooked, but now... He commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's a righteous judge by that man whom he hath raised from the dead. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has appointed a day in which he will send Jesus Christ to judge this world. And the question for you and I then is, Will we be ready for him? Will we have taken responsibility for our own sins? Will we have come to understand who God and who Jesus Christ are? How they want us to live and how we can be forgiven for our sins? And will we have the same purpose as them? This this purpose of ridding the world of all sin and all evil. Because that's God's purpose. Well, I hope you've found the things that we've looked at tonight uh, helpful in understanding some of the key doctrines of the Bible and in your search for Bible truth.